Our scripture this morning comes from Acts chapter 6 and 7. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of an angel. And the high priest said, Are these things so? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Sarah. Uh, well, good morning, Christ Community. Uh, good to see you all. My name is Reed Kappel. Uh, I serve as the, the campus pastor here. Uh, well, I did, I think. I, I get one more Sunday, right? Uh, so, uh, but it is a joy to be with you. Uh, one quick thing. Uh, so as, as Nathan mentioned, we do love that our kids are here in this service. And So kids, if you're with us, uh, we have something called the Kid Connect. Uh, there's a great little thing to follow along in the sermon. Uh, there's like word searches and mazes and things like that. And if you fill it out, uh, you can bring this actually. So we're kind of changing things up a bit. We have a candy bowl. It's usually here, but we have it at the welcome table out in the lobby. So you can bring this to the welcome table and they will shower you with candy. Well, maybe not shower you, but uh, bring this to the welcome table, and we'd love to give you some candy. So, uh, again, we're glad you're here. Um, so, it, it's probably not a big surprise uh, when I say something like, our world, our culture is very divided. You know, there, there's a lot of things that kind of keep us apart. There's a lot of tension, a lot of conflict. But, but in our world of division, our world of conflict, there are some things that bring us together. And one of those things is the universal game of peekaboo. I don't, know, I don't know if you know this, but literally every child in every culture throughout the world plays peekaboo. There's something about this game that is wired into our psyche that is so unique. And like all of my kids have played peekaboo, there's something unique about it. And there have been many studies conducted to kind of find out why this is. And there's a sense in which peekaboo is this game where children feel like they're actually creating magic. That there's a sense which they think that they are causing the world to disappear or to cause themselves to disappear by simply closing their eyes. And I remember all of my children, when I say, like, where's Jane? They bury their head, you know, and they think in that moment, I can't see them. You know, they're like, I've disappeared. And it's so fascinating. But, but I know, and you know, that, like, there's nothing that has changed their visibility in that moment because when it comes to light, I mean, light is this power that we can't kind of contain or prevent from shining upon. I mean, even in this moment, I am impervious to the lights shining on me, okay? Like, like I could play peekaboo with you, but nothing would change other than like my dignity or your respect for me. Um, but th the reason why is because when we think about light as a source, as a power, it's a power that we can't contain, even though we may attempt to reject it by closing our eyes. But my closed eyelids does nothing to alter the fact that light is shining on me. And I share this because when we think about our relationship to light, it's actually in some ways analogous to the way in which we think about relate to God. 
in the sense that God, as, as he has revealed himself throughout creation, while we may not see him visibly, his glory is shining and being made known throughout creation. And there's a sense in which when the scriptures refer to God, one of the words that is commonly used in the scriptures is this word glory. And, and glory, when it's used in the scriptures, there's this, this image of brightness and light. And when we talk about the glory of God, the glory of God is shining in creation, displayed through the things he has made. It is displayed in his provision in this world and even through the transformation of our own lives. The question is, when it comes to the glory of God, is do we have the eyes to see it or are we finding ourselves closing our eyes in rejection? Because when we think about God and glory, it's very similar to light. That the glory of God, just like light, can't be contained, but it can be rejected. As we think about this kind of abstract concept of the glory of God, it is something that cannot be contained, but it can indeed, and it often is, rejected. And I believe this is the heart uh, of, of really Stephen's message that we're seeing in Acts chapter 7, which we'll be looking at this morning. It's this idea that I want us to explore and unpack a little bit as we turn to this phenomenal sermon given by the first martyr of the Christian church. And so that is what we'll be looking at this morning, and we'll be actually kind of in three chapters, parts of six, most all of seven, and then a little bit of part of chapter eight. Uh, but before we jump into God's word this morning, I want to pray for our time. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, we, we come to you in prayer asking that you would bless the teaching of your word. Lord, I recognize and feel my inadequacy in this time. I pray that you would bless the teaching of your word, that we might be formed and shaped by it, that you might give us the eyes to see and behold your beauty, your wonder, your glory in this world. And may we see it most beautifully and notably in the face of Jesus Christ. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So uh, just to give a little bit of context here, so we've been going through the book of Acts, and up until this point, we, we've seen there have been the, the arrest and trial of Stephen marks the third consecutive trial of a Christian or groups of Christians. So back in Acts 4, we see John and Peter arrested. And then in Acts 5, we see all of the apostles arrested and flogged. And now we come to Stephen who is arrested. And what we see is that the punishments get more and more severe as they go on because Stephen is executed because of his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus of Nazareth, the one who who defeated death through his resurrection. And, and in many ways, this message that Stephen is delivering, it is a powerful message, but it is one that I believe also has profound wisdom for us in our modern day. And, and, and really, it's also, it's kind of a, maybe a weird text to look at on Palm Sunday, but it's actually a phenomenal text because when you think about what Palm Sunday is about, it is the story of Jesus triumphantly entering into Jerusalem as he is being declared, and there are praises over him, Hosanna, Hosanna, worthy is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But what we also know about Palm Sunday is that while there were words of praise in that group, there were also people that despised Jesus and wanted him dead. And we see that as Holy Week continues on. And so in some ways, uh, Stephen's message here is really a, like kind of a microcosm of what Palm Sunday is about that really throughout history, God has sent messengers and prophets, representatives of himself and his truth to his people, and they have time and time again rejected him. And that is what Stephen is getting at in this message as he proclaims this beautifully long sermon before his death. 
So Stephen has been falsely accused, and he's been accused of preaching blasphemy. And, and he has been arrested under these trumped-up charges. He's brought before this religious council to defend his life. And so what does Stephen say? What on earth can he possibly declare to defend himself against a hostile crowd that wants him dead? Well, Stephen begins his sermon in chapter 7, verse 2, by saying this, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So, so Stephen's strategy for defending himself, for, allowing, for, for trying to uh, uh, convince his accusers that he is proclaiming truth, he centers his whole case on this abstract concept of the glory of God. And, and it is kind of an abstract phrase. It kind of has, it's like this churchy's language, like what is the glory of God? How do you understand it? And it is, that is an abstract concept. Um, and so when we ask the question, like, what is the glory of God? In, in some ways, that question is like, a, is like a fish being asked, what is water? Because when the scriptures talk about the glory of God, the display of his beauty, his power, and his might, it talks about how the world is filled with the glory of God. That what we see is that throughout creation, God's power, his beauty, his provision, his protection, his action and presence is displayed in all things, displaying his glory and might. We see his glory in the air we breathe, in the relationships that we've been graced with, with the food that we eat and taste good, with, with the music we hear and the beauty we behold. God is shouting his glory throughout the world. And so if I had to kind of put this abstract concept into a nutshell definition... I would say that the glory of God, the glory of God is the manifestation of all that is truly true, truly beautiful, and truly good in this world. The glory of God is the manifestation of all that is truly true, truly good, and truly beautiful in this world. And it is this concept that Stephen is centering his sermon around and really the case for his life. And so Stephen, what he's doing in his sermon is he, he kind of steps back, and it looks like he's just kind of giving this like theological filibuster, like, these guys want me dead, I'll just keep talking as long as I can. But he's actually very methodical in the way in which he shows that throughout time, God has sent messengers and prophets to his people to represent and to declare the glory of God and his presence in the world. And Stephen also shows that throughout time, God's people have rejected his messengers over and over again. And so Stephen, as he takes his accusers down memory lane, so to speak, he's not just telling them stories that they've forgotten, but rather he's showing that there's been a pattern throughout the people of Israel that God has sent messengers to declare the glory of God, and Israel has rejected these messengers over and over again. And Stephen begins with the story of Joseph. And Joseph, you remember, he had these older brothers who sold him into slavery, the technicolor dream coat. And, and Stephen shows, he says in verse 9, the patriarchs, referring to Joseph's brothers, they are jealous of Joseph and they sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Now, there's nothing inherently offensive about that story to Stephen's accusers. What's offensive is what Stephen is getting at in telling this story. Stephen is slowly building this case that is by part and part, by small steps, is making his accusers more and more agitated. Like they already start out already ticked by this guy, but by the end of the sermon, they are outraged. They want him dead. And the reason why their anger increases is because Stephen is slowly showing 
that his accusers are in the same line of God's people who have rejected God's messengers. Stephen is slowly building this case. It, it's kind of, it reminds me a few years ago in our old house, uh, one night I was letting our dog out, and we have a deck, and there was this raccoon perched on the top of our deck, on the railing. And so I realized I didn't want to let my dog go out, you know, so I, I tried to get to kind of scare the raccoon away because I'm a very intimidating person. <laughs> You're laughing because it's not true. And so what I did, I went and got like some pennies, and I started throwing it at the raccoon just to like <laughs> scare it away. And, and after like $1.87, like, like <laughs> the raccoon is still there. And so I'm like, well, what do I do? So my next step, I kid you not, I went and got my daughter's strawberry shortcake baseball bat and walked towards it. And I don't know what I was thinking. And I just, in my mind, I was just going to hit this thing. And I was envisioning this like marmot just soaring like yards and yards. And I went and just whacked it. And it just went, and it just stared at me with this like utter disappointment. Like that's all you have. And so like, and I share this story because in some ways, what Stephen is doing, he's kind of just throwing pennies at his accusers. But slowly he builds his case to the point that he brings out his strawberry shortcake baseball bat and agitates them. So what is Stephen doing as he's throwing these pennies? Well, he moves from Joseph to Moses. And the first example he gives of Moses is when Moses kills an Egyptian uh, to come, when he comes to the defense of a fellow Israelite. And, and, and Moses, in his mind, he's thinking, hey, this will earn me some street cred with my Israelite brothers. But instead, Stephen points out in verse 25, he, referring to Moses, he supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. So then, so Stephen, he, he, he kind of builds his case even more. So, so Israel is not understanding Moses as the one sent by God to be the deliverer of God's people. But then Stephen retells the moment when, when Moses tells Israel, hey, just so you guys know, you might think I'm cool, but there's a greater prophet even coming after me, one who is far greater than myself. And what we see in verse 37 is that Moses declares this to the Israelites. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. And how did the people of Israel respond? Oh, joy, we, we cannot wait. What is his favorite dessert? We shall bake it for him. Like there, There's not this expectation. Rather, they reject Moses as well as the truth that a greater prophet will come. And Stephen shows us this in verse 39. Our fathers refused to obey Moses, but they thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. Moses has been rejected by the people of God. But not only did Israel reject Moses, they, they kind of turned this whole 180 and started worshiping the creation of their hands, namely the golden calf. And so up until this point, so, so you can kind of guess that the blood of, of Stephen's accusers is starting to boil a little bit more. And then Stephen pulls out the strawberry shortcake bat and agitates his accusers even more so. And we see as Stephen concludes his sermon in verses 51 and 52, he says, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Stephen knows exactly what he's doing. 
He is showing that his accusers are a part of this long line of people who have rejected God's messengers who were sent to declare the beauty of God's glory in his presence throughout the world. And Stephen is telling them, you have rejected the greatest messenger, the greatest manifestation of the glory of God, namely Jesus of Nazareth. You see, Stephen's accusers were not just rejecting Stephen. They were not just rejecting Christians or even Christianity. They were rejecting Jesus, the righteous one, the one Moses pointed to, the one that all of Scripture is building towards. In some sense, you you could sum up Stephen's uh, sermon like this. You rejected the true and better Abraham, the one who left his home and everything that was familiar so that he might be a blessing to all nations. You rejected the true and better Joseph, the one who was betrayed by his own and through his suffering brought about life for many. You have rejected the true and better Moses, the one sent by God to be the deliverer of God's people from slavery and death. You have rejected the righteous one, the one who entered Jerusalem on a donkey hearing shouts of praise only to die on a cross a few days later hearing shouts of betrayal. You have rejected Jesus. And Stephen is very clear on that, which is why he was put to death. Now, the question maybe some of us are asking, like, okay, so what? What on earth, I mean, why should I care about what what some group of religious leaders 2,000 years ago thought about another religious leader 2,000 years ago? What is this truth? What does this sermon have to do with my life today? And that's a good question. I'm glad you asked it. And I want us to look at this question a little bit more. Because a big part of why Stephen's speech was so aggravating to his accusers was because they had a very narrow view of how God operated in the world. Specifically, you know, the way Israel thought about God, the glory of God, was that the glory of God was made manifest in the temple. And the glory of God was only made manifest among God's people, Israel. There was no category among the Israelites to see that the glory of God transcended the people of Israel, and the temple, which was their place of worship. For Stephen to suggest that God's glory is seen and declared and spread throughout the entire world, and and, and most notably seen in the manifestation of Jesus Christ, the Israelites had no category for this. They had a narrow understanding of the supernatural and of the glory of God. Now consider our our predominant culture, or the posture in our culture. In the West, particularly, we fundamentally kind of look at the world and operate with this idea that that all that there is really is the natural world. And everything that, that takes place in the natural world can be explained by things within the natural world. And it's similar, really, to the people of Israel. We, in our day, have a very narrow understanding of, of the supernatural, even when I say that word, some of you are thinking, this sounds so absurd. I knew you were going to get to this kind of fairy tale aspect of the Christian faith. But in our day, we believe fundamentally, I mean, in the church and outside the church, that there's no such thing as the glory of God or the supernatural. Because everything is, or at least can be explained by natural causes. We live in what, what uh, the Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor says, we live in within the imminent frame that we live in a world that is purely material and everything can be explained found within this material world. That, that at the bedrock of our foundation about thinking about reality, there is this fundamental claim that there is nothing beyond the material world. 
And we operate in this way because we have, we have largely adopted and allowed kind of the scientific method to determine ultimate reality. And, and frankly, I mean, when we think about the scientific method, like, that it does not possess the ability to determine ultimate reality. And please hear me. I am not driving a wedge between faith and science. That There should not be a wedge between faith and science. But what I believe we have kind of been duped into thinking in our Western world is that, is that I mean, because science, what science is really set up to do is observe natural phenomenons and, and try to explain those natural phenomenons through natural causes. And that's good, that's right, that's beautiful. If you're a scientist, great. If you want to be a scientist, great. But what has happened in our day is that we have made a jump. We have made a jump from saying science observes natural phenomenon by natural causes and explains them by natural causes. It's one thing to say that phenomenon X is explained by natural cause Y. That's one thing. That's great. It is an entirely different thing to say phenomenon X can only be explained by natural cause Y. That is a leap that really requires faith. And so in our world, when we think about, I mean, because we might think about supernatural as being foolish and ridiculous, but to make the claim that everything can be explained by natural causes, therefore supernatural causes can't exist, that is a logical fallacy that doesn't hold up. In fact, uh, philosopher Alvin Plantinga, he puts it this way, this is really helpful. He says, this argument, this way of thinking, is like the drunk man who insisted on looking for his lost car keys only under the streetlight on the grounds that the light was better there. In fact, it would go the drunk one better. It would insist that because the keys would be hard to find in the dark, they must be under the light. It is not a sufficient argument for us to say that science, science is not set up to observe supernatural phenomenon, therefore supernatural phenomenon cannot exist. That doesn't make sense, that doesn't hold up. We have to see that there is, there is more going on. There is a faulty logic in that way of thinking. And this is the fundamental line of thinking that we tend to operate in, even in Christian circles. And yet, what I believe is that in our purely material, biological understanding of the world, we are also simultaneously haunted by cracks in the ceiling where we see light, where we see glory shining through, and we don't know what to do with it. There is a glory in this world that we cannot explain, but we sense and we observe, we realize that this cold, godless, purely material world does not fit within the longings of our hearts. For some of us, this, this describes exactly where we are. That you may not be quite at the place where you're ready to just say the world is a coldless, cold, godless, purely biological place. Maybe you're not quite there, but, but neither are you at this place to say the earth is filled with the divine glory of God. Maybe you're not there either. My guess is that many of us probably identify with, with the words of James K.A. Smith who says this. All sorts of people feel themselves caught in these cross pressures, pushed by the imminence of disenchantment on one side, but also pushed by a sense of significance and transcendence on another side. This probably describes more of us than we actually realize. And, and if it describes you, let me say, I, I am thrilled that you're here. I'm glad that you are asking these questions and, 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 and caught in these cross pressures. I want us to wrestle through these together. But I also want us to at least be willing to ask these other sets of questions. 
The questions maybe that say, what if there is more to humanity than our biology? What if there is more to the world than what we observe empirically? What if there's more to life than what we are told by our culture? And what if the words of the psalmist in Psalm 19 are actually true? When we hear that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork, that day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge, there is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. The earth is filled with the glory of God. It is haunted with the supernatural, with these pictures of light cracking through, shining through the cracks in our ceiling. The question is, are our eyes open in adoration or are they closed in rejection? The reality is that regardless of how how progressive you might think you are or how religious you might think you are, All of us are drawn to to find awe and wonder, really, to worship something in this world. And, and, And what we worship, it shapes us, it forms us into the people that we are becoming, whether we see it or not. It's what Ralph Waldo Emerson said when he says, a person will worship something, have no doubt about that. That which dominates our imaginations and our thoughts will determine our lives and our character. Therefore... It behooves us, isn't that beautiful? It behooves us to be careful what we worship. For what we are worshiping, we are becoming. And I think Stephen knew this truth very well. Because Stephen, Stephen did not just simply worship God or worship Jesus, but he was being formed and shaped by the object of his worship. Stephen had his eyes open to behold the glory of God in all of creation, and it transformed the way in which he lived his life. It compelled him to go to his death to proclaim the goodness of Jesus Christ, the truth of his life, death, and resurrection, and to even ask for forgiveness that he he is pleading and loving his enemies even to the point of his death. What compelled him to do that was an image, was the picture of glory. Stephen lived his life captivated by a glory that that changed him, a glory that he could not contain and a glory that he did not reject, a glory that compelled him to love and care for the needs of the most vulnerable in his community when no one else would, a a glory that, that emboldened him to proclaim a polarizing message in a hostile context that he beheld a glory that empowered him to to express love and forgiveness towards his enemies. And it was a glory that he beheld that allowed him to face death with hope and joy, even till his dying breath. Because for Stephen, Stephen, for Stephen, following Jesus, the righteous one, the one that Moses foretold, following Jesus was not a hobby, it was not a facet of his life, It directly defined and determined everything about him. His life was lived captivated by a glory, a glory of the true cornerstone of this world and of all of life, which enabled him to receive the stones that put him to death. And why was he able to do this? Because Stephen's life was transformed by the one, the one who entered death and returned from it victoriously. The reason why Stephen lived his life so faithfully and fruitfully is because the one that Stephen saw, 
The one that captivated him was the one who stood in heaven, gloriously standing before him, who secured his salvation for him and for you and for me. Which is why at the end of Stephen's life, what is recorded here in verses 55 and 56, but he, referring to Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. It is this image, it is this glory that was shining through the cracks in our ceiling that Stephen saw that transformed him and compelled him to face hostility with grace, to face fear with confidence and hope, and to face death with joy. We all behold some form of glory in life. We will all be captivated by something that will compel us to worship, and it will form us and shape us. The question is, what what is it that we will be captivated by? What is the glory in this world that we are drawn to? And will it be enough to form us into the people we long to be? Stephen saw the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, which is actually what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. And in fact, the words that we even see recorded here of Stephen's sermon, the only explanation we have of why we have them is actually because of the Apostle Paul who is present during Stephen's stoning which I believe is what compelled Paul to write in 2 Corinthians 4, the same God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown into our hearts to reveal to us the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It is this glory that Stephen beheld. It is this glory that could not be contained and he could not reject. It's a glory that allowed him to face opposition with grace, to face his enemies with love, and to face death with hope. This is what the power of the glory of God does in our lives. God's glory is shining and it is shouting over all of us. Do we have eyes to see it? Do we have the eyes to see that light is breaking through the cracks in our ceiling? May we, by the power of the Spirit, live with our eyes wide open to see the glory that is made known to us through the one who created us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I recognize that, that I have a, a heart and a mind that is, that is so often turned off to the glory that you have revealed and made known throughout this world. Lord, I ask that, that by your spirit, you would empower us and equip us to have our eyes open, the scales to fall off of our eyes, that we might see you for who you are, that we might delight in your goodness that we might see your glory that fills the earth and the manifestation of all that is truly true, truly good, and truly beautiful. And Lord, most specifically, I ask that in this time, you would reveal to us your glory that is made known most beautifully, most powerfully in the face of Jesus Christ, the one who came to live for us and die for us and defeat death for us. Lord, may we see him for who he is and may we live in light of that truth in a way that shows us we cannot help but see this uncontainable glory and we cannot reject it. May it be so in our lives, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we wanted to take just a moment here at the end of the service. Uh, you know, there's a, I've had a lot of emotions. You can probably imagine if you know me uh, over the last couple of weeks, uh, joy, excitement. Um, perhaps most of all, though, is a sense of gratitude. 
Um, gratefulness, first of all, to God, right, to allow us and enable us to do that, and, and the stewardship, right, that comes along with that. But also gratitude for so many of you have participated and contributed and done so much to make this possible. So we just wanted to take just a, a, a minute here at the end uh, to thank uh, those of you who, who have done that, um, to, to be a part of this, to make this possible. And so if you, if you served, I'm talking like volunteered in any, any capacity, serving on the charrette team, finishing touches, the Reach KC team, you help clean or move stuff or decorate or pretty much do anything to help this happen. Would you just stand so we can thank you, please? Please? Few of you, can we thank? Come on, yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. And there's uh, there's one person in particular that I want to make uncomfortable. Um, he he is the reason this project was on time. Uh, saved us literally thousands of dollars from negotiating prices to hauling out trash to dealing with vandals. Yes, that happened, uh, and he caught them, which was awesome. Um, <laughs> Some of you only know him as our worship pastor, but he is the secret sauce behind the scenes of everything that happens here. So can we thank Patrick Largen? Ah, I love that guy. Been doing this a long time together. Uh, and then finally, finally, of course, for those of you who gave financially, I'm not going to make you stand, right? Because most of us would be standing. I know that. Uh, but we just, we cannot say thank you enough for those of you who have sacrificed, who've given deeply above and beyond to make this happen uh, here and across all of our campuses. And we, we are just so, so grateful that we've been able to do this with only a minimum of debt. So thank you so much for that. And I want, for those of you who, who have done that, right, who've been a part of this process from the beginning, I want you to like look around, okay, and not, not just at the building, but the people come and like just let it sink in for a moment that you helped make that happen you did that we did that thank you so much for the ways in which you've sacrificed to make that possible let me just say too if that if you haven't yet contributed don't you want to be a part of this i mean honestly right it's not too late jump in with us Uh, be a part of what god is doing make our celebration your celebration uh, what an incredible group effort all this has been, and we praise God for it, right? Amen? Would you stand with me for the benediction? Um, again, so glad that you came to church this morning. I hope that you come back later this afternoon for the party. Uh, if you're new or a guest, you want more information, don't forget to stop by the Welcome Center. We're so, again, just so glad that you're here. And as we go, we do this every week, right? As we're sent out into the places, because we don't think church ends here, right? It's not confined to these four walls. It is our identity as God's people to be his people in every place that he has put you. And so as you go into the places God has called you, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen? Go in peace.